Yeah, well, I uh, understand that ultimately risk management is going to be more important to us. To, to, if you're going to be successful, risk management is going to be more important than necessarily the methodology you, you, you ultimately gravitate to. Second, you need to develop a methodology that does have an edge, meaning it doesn't have to be a big edge, but it means over time you're making more money than you're losing, and it's a repeatable process, it's well-defined, and it doesn't generate huge drawdowns to get your, you know, uh, upside. So you have to develop a a methodology of an edge, and that takes time, uh, and not everybody's going to be able to do it. You're listening to the Steady Trade Podcast, a podcast that inspires traders to make meaningful strides and pursue their passions. Your hosts are Tim Bowen, the lead trainer at Stocks to Trade Pro, Kim Ann Curtin, the Wall Street coach, and Steven Johnson, the up-and-coming trader who's always willing to learn. Together, we'll sit down with experts to talk about their process, the lessons they've learned, and discuss how all traders can level up their trading careers. Welcome back, everybody, to the Steady Trade Podcast. It's Stephen Johnson and I and our amazing guest, Jack Schwager, today. Uh, Jack uh, and I go back, gosh, it's been probably seven years, right? Seven, eight years? Since you wrote your book, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We met in New York City uh, where I had the good fortune to interview Jack with him doing all the interviews. It was nice to put him uh, on the other side of that conversation. Jack, of course, is a recognized industry expert in futures and hedge funds. He's the author of a number of widely acclaimed financial books and perhaps best known for his best selling series of interviews with the greatest traders and hedge fund managers of the last three decades. Market Wizards, which came out in 1989, undoubtedly changed my life. I'll never forget reading it. I can't tell you, even when I read it outside, I was in uh, Spring Lake, New Jersey at a table. It was like near an ice cream kind of restaurant little ice cream parlor and all the uh, men who passed me saw me reading Market Wizards and they were like, oh, you are going to love this book. And I was like, really? These are complete strangers. So excited about that book. Uh, And now I understand, of course, why. And it also influenced me in a lot of ways about uh, how I was going to write my book. So I can't thank you enough for that, Jack. Uh, But all those books, the whole series, uh, and today's book that we're going to be talking about is part of that series. Uh, and he has a lot of books, but the other book I want to do a special shout out for is one that I really liked called Market Sense and Nonsense. That came out in 2012, and it's really just a collection of investment misconceptions. Uh, and I think, you know, especially for our audience, that is a book that'll be really great. Uh, Jack is also the co-founder and chief research officer of Fund Cedar, a firm that seeks to find undiscovered talent, trading talent uh, worldwide. And fundseater.com is where you can find that. And today we're going to be talking about a book which is called Unknown Market Wizards, uh, a fantastic read. I've been devouring it since it came in. It came in about a week ago for me. Uh, So we're going to be talking to Jack today about those unknown market wizards. Thank you, Jack, for being here. Oh, yeah. Thanks for the invitation. You know, I think I first want to just speak to how it is that you find these market wizards. And and yes, for this particular book, especially because they're unknown, who, you know, how is it that you hear about them uh, in the first place? Well, multi- multiple ways. Uh, about four, I think four of them came actually from, you know, from Fundseeder, the people who had linked their accounts to Fundseeder. Um, and the concept of Fundseeder for, I'm assuming a large part of the audience won't know, was to really find undiscovered trading talent by providing a platform, an analytical platform for trader, for traders. Um, so that, that was one major source. I, uh, I happened to know some of the traders before, like Peter Grant, who was actually kind of not really unknown. He's unknown in the, maybe he's not managing money, so he's not necessarily known in the investment community. But he is known among traders because he's developed a large following you know, on Twitter in the last few years. But he's the one exception, and I want to have him in the book anyway. But I knew Peter you know, for a while. A uh, couple of other traders in the book, um, 
contacted me and uh, I sort of kept like um, Jeff Newman wrote me an email describing what he had achieved before I ever uh, started this book. I, I just saved his email. Uh, I told him I wasn't doing a book, but if I did, I would get back to him. And if he could prove his, uh, if he could prove his claims, which were pretty, <laughs> pretty out there, like, you know, which, which he did. It was essentially that he turned $2,500 into 50 million. Um, and of course I got the statements, but so yeah, he had contacted me initially a couple of other traders had contacted me for other reasons. Uh, uh, Jason Shapiro, uh, uh, my book was an influence, got him into the industry. And um, he was coming to Boulder uh, for a wedding and he asked if I would be willing to meet with him. And when he told me about, he didn't want to be in the book though, but when he told me his story, it's pretty fascinating. So I finally, when I got, when I was doing the book, I called him back or emailed him, I should say. And and sort of said, look, I think it'd be great to be in there. And it was back and forth. He, he said no, and then finally he said yes. But so again, he had Chris Camillo, another trader in the book had contacted me for a totally unrelated reason. And I said, you know, want to speak to me for advice about a project. And I said, well, you know, if you want to fly into uh, Boulder to have lunch, you know, I'll meet you. So I met him that way. And then, so, so you have, the people I knew beforehand for various reasons, the people from Funseeder. And the last category is I put out some tweets saying, I'm doing a book looking for unknown, you know, solo traders with long-term, preferably over a decade track records and phenomenal return risk or um, exceptional compound return. If you are, if you've written the description or if you know somebody who does, uh, let me know, you know, and that, that, <clears throat> that filled out the remainder, you know, so. Yeah. And just, just for our listeners, just so you guys have a sense of what's in store in this book, uh, in addition to the trader who turned his account of 2,500 into 50 million, there's a trader who achieved an average annual return of 337% over a 13 year period, a trader who made tens of millions using a unique approach that employed neither fundamental nor technical analysis, a former ad exec who used classical chart analysis to achieve a 58% average annual return over a 27 year span, and a promising junior tennis player uh, in the UK who abandoned his quest for that career and trading and generating a nine-year nine track record with the average annual return of just under 300%. I mean, these are these are really quite impressive, Jack. Yeah, they're pretty amazing. I didn't expect, <clears throat> I really didn't expect to find track records like that. I thought, you know, the ability to make those type of returns was maybe existed when I did the first market versus book, <clears throat> when you had real inflationary times and, uh, trends that were very, very powerful in one direction. And uh, you didn't have the, the computerization yet in the industry. So people who were early on to trends could have made exceptional gains. So I thought it was no longer possible to do that, but apparently it is. Yeah. Stephen, can you believe those numbers? Uh, it's it's exceptional. And, and the other thing that's exceptional, uh, Jack, is the amount of brilliant brilliant traders you've spoke to like from market wizards to unknown market wizards to new market wizards there's a lot of there's a lot of wizards there yeah um and if just to tell you a bit about the podcast the podcast is geared and designed towards aspiring traders people who are just in ordinary jobs but they want to get out and you've spoke to the best of the best traders so i was just curious what characteristics truly define a, a good solid trader because I saw you in an interview, in an interview you said a lot of people fail really badly quite a few times but those people went on to be the best traders so is there a characteristics you've come across it in these hundreds of interviews you've done so the specific question you're asking then is is what <laughs> the, the question that I'm asking is what defines a, a brilliant trader uh, what, or what characteristics yeah. you need yeah it's First of all, methodology, they're all over the place and they're all different. And, uh, you know, methodology doesn't define it. Personality doesn't define it. Uh, You know, these traders have certain commonalities, uh, which other people could have some of them, 
uh, and not be, you know, certainly not do anything like what these traders have done. But there are certain essentials. So they've all developed some precise methodology that has an edge, you know, whatever it may be. And uh, so it could be uh, having a particular skill in picking chart points to put on to put trades on. It could be uh, on being uh, exceptionally skilled at trading fundamental events in the market. Uh, one, you know, one trader is in the book is a contrarian. So it's a matter of marrying that going going in against what has been a major trend, but with the type of market knowledge uh, and insight that and risk management that that you can do that and not get carried out so and be successful. So everybody develops their own their own particular methodology. Uh, so what they do have, like I said, is the, is the developing a specific uh, edge uh, risk management. Almost all the traders have uh, a very strong, very strong uh, emphasis on risk management. Uh, they tend to be flexible, the ability to change, to change on a dime if they're wrong, to get out very quickly if they're wrong. Um, you know, patience to wait for the, for the right types of trades and and bypass bypass those periods where there aren't opp- opportunities, not get distracted by by wanting to do something when they're when a trade dictated by their methodology doesn't exist. So you know there are you know all sorts of things like that. There there are more character and psychological traits and and of course the methodology is specific, but it's a different type of fortitude and ability to not be influenced by the types of emotions that drive people to make mistakes in the market. Yeah, no, you have you have a quote that will stay with me forever in stock market wizards. It's uh, being wrong is acceptable, but staying wrong is totally unacceptable. Uh, <laughs> that's a good one. I really liked Richard Barg's interview, The Importance of Mindset. Yeah. Uh, his, his journey sounds like it was bumpy in the beginning for him. And yet that perseverance, that's what really set out for me. He is just was so perseverant. Yeah, well, he knew he wanted to do this. And it's not that he did badly. It's that he worked for a prop firm, had a line of approximately, when he started out at least, uh, had a line of about 30,000 British pounds, which is not much. And uh, and they were drawing money out every month for office you know, space. Yeah. So he could, he could make, you know, I mean, they were drawing out like almost 10%. So, I mean, he could make, 70% in the year and still be break even or behind eight ball. So it wasn't that he was doing bad. It's just, it's just that he was just keeping up with his, with his yeah. expenses, essentially. Yeah. I, I was struck by his, his seeing, you know, of course, I'm always looking through the lens of the mindset, right? How that impacts a trader. And he talked about how he really had to come, had a, had to reconcile with his sense of always comparing himself to other traders at his firm where he would see, he would compare himself to them or beat himself up if he didn't right, have their right. results. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So he, he was the young, there were actually, this is, there was one exception that, you know, before this book where the tr- traders knew each other. And that, and that was uh, Michael Marcus, who then introduced me to Ed Sakota, who he considered the best trader he knew. And uh, so Ed Sakota was kind of his mentor. They had been together at some point. And then Michael Marcus hired Bruce Kovner, uh, who you know, went on to be Caxton and so forth. Um, so um, there, there were three traders there, there's a connection. So in this book, there, the first, the only other time that happened, there were three traders connected because they all got started in the same prop firm. Mm-hmm. So one was there from, you know, before the other two. So uh, and Richard was the was the youngest of the three. So he came in like five years after Amrit started, and he, it's not so much they didn't even work right near each other, but Amrit sort of gave him some advice, and and so did the other trader Dalgit, you know who was also a senior. So, but he was comparing himself. I mean, Amrit is a trader you mentioned that was making 337% a year. Um, you know, and back then it was even higher because uh, maybe because of smaller capital, but he had 
he had one crazy year where he made over 3,000%. So, you know, he's, he's comparing himself to, you know, traders that are just extraordinary, uh, which is not a fair comparison. He yeah. always did okay. He always did okay. I mean, if he, if he was just trading his own account, but he, you know, but he had the support of, of the prop firm. So yeah. I guess if he was just on his own, he wouldn't have learned, he wouldn't have picked up stuff from the other traders. Yeah. He wouldn't, you know, so. When you're comparing yourself though, to greatness, you know, yeah. in a lot of ways that probably drove him a lot harder because he was not comparing himself to just average type yeah. traders. It just called him forth more once he got out of his own way of having kind of hinder him. Yeah. And also, you know, he had to mature. Uh, I believe it's in this interview where he talks about how he would miss a trade and other people got it. And it just killed him that other people having, you know, this was a monster opportunity. He missed it. And these other people were really profiting, but he matured. And over time, you know, was able to say, well, yeah, I missed it, but good for the, good for the other guy. You know, he had to get past that. And that's part of the mental maturity that, that makes him a really good trader to, that that's part of the, the mindset thing. You know, it's not yeah. to let things like that get to you and on the contrary. So it's just going to cost you. You have to get that mental maturity. Yeah. That uh, I think it's Brandt who has the title of his chapter is strong opinions, weekly held. Yeah. What a powerful quote. Isn't that amazing, Stephen? Strong opinions, weekly held. Oh, that is an amazing quote. Yeah, and that's that's his philosophy basically. So he puts on trades. He has he's strong for the trade, but as he put as he paraphrasing Peter, the minute the market puts his hand in my pocket, I'm really quick to get out. You know, so as long as it works, fine. But if it doesn't work pretty quickly, he's out. Yeah. And uh, and it also relates to this this thing about you know Twitter, where I mean he has a large amount of followers now. I think he has like somewhere close to 400,000, I think. Wow. Uh, but in any case, he would get tweet, he would get people comment on, you know, it's a, and people always, not, not all people, but a lot of people feel they have to put other people down so they can feel okay. Mm. So he said, so Peter put out some, something like, I don't know, uh, buy the S&P, you know, uh, I'm not, I'm not buy, he doesn't give recommendations. He would say, he might refer to a trade he did, you know, or here's the trade I'm doing, or whatever it is. And let's say it's buying the S&P. And he would get, like, people tweeting, oh, yeah, Peter was, like, recommending the short side of the S&P 1,000 points lower, right? So saying, you know, how could you pay any attention to him? You know, 1,000 points lower, he's telling to sell it. And now he's saying to buy it. And totally missing the point that he was out of that trade, like, probably a day later, you know, and and his opinion, you know, then he had no opinion, then he'd have to wait for another spot to form an opinion. And he doesn't try to pick, he's not predicting. He never predicts where the market's going to go. He's just trying to pick a point where he thinks he has a good return risk uh, opportunity at that particular point in time in that particular market. He's not predicting that it's, you know, going anywhere. So yeah, uh, yeah. so people just, you know, so that, that, that quote, uh, <clears throat> strong opinions weekly held, relates very well to that type of attitude among some people yeah. not having the ego drive all of your decisions you're really able to keep it tamed well more that it's not a matter is you know not a matter of staying with staying with positions because you said something okay. it's a matter of picking your spot if it doesn't work you know you're out and that's that and go on to the next thing yeah. so it, it, you know that's different than than saying i think the s&p is going up you know for the next five years or whatever yeah yeah it's um it's this is something again I saw with you in an interview, Jack. You were you were saying pick the place where you're gonna step out before before you get into the trade, because as soon as you get into the trade, the your opinion is is objective. Right. Um and and it, it's just such it's the same mistake all traders like any trader who doesn't really make money, it's the same mistake. They always think about what they're gonna win, they never think about what they're gonna lose, right? Yeah, I well, I mean there's a couple of things in which you just said. So uh, yeah, ordinary traders will think about how much they can make. A really good traders are always worried about what they can lose. And uh, this 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 idea about getting in uh, or deciding where you get out before you get in 
uh, most easily done with a guttal cancel stop, but some people can can have you know very strong discipline and can can trust themselves to act on it. But that concept is something <clears throat> that's come up repeatedly in every Marco Wizard book, and was probably first cited by Bruce Governor, and you know, he's just said exactly that. No, no, I you know know where you're going to get out before you get in. That and that's critical because it places a limit, barring exceptional circumstances where there's a, a huge market gap because of some unexpected thing. But under normal circumstances, it defines how much you could lose on a trade. Mm-hmm. And the decision comes before you're in the trade, so you have the advantage of objectivity. As as um as looking at one of your books, um, market sense and, and nonsense, and I, I found something really interesting because you were saying, you know that it's legal jargon to say past performance is not indicative of future yeah. returns. I was really interested that you said because this this is how I learned the stock market by history doesn't repeat but it rhymes, and we trade what happens in the past because it happens again. But when you were talking about investing, what struck me is the opposite of what I've learned in the past. You were saying. The, the past best performing stocks perform worse than the average ones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I did it. I did several studies. I did it with uh, the entire market, you know, the entire S&P or what was the, what was the equivalent to the S&P before the, the S&P. I think I had data back to about 1850 or something like that. Uh, so looked at when you invest, uh, uh, if you're looking investing after the worst past five, 10, and 20 year periods, periods versus investing under, you know, uh, uh, the best, you know, uh, corresponding periods. And I did it for hedge fund strategies. <clears throat> you know, we're using hedge fund research list of uh, 35 or seven or whatever it is, strategies and looking at what happens when you invest in the best recent strategies versus the worst. But it can, you know, so I did it in several different ways. And in each of those experiments, it basically came out that investing in the best recent strategies or, you know, uh, or market or whatever uh, tended to do much worse than the the reverse. And that's not, you know, it's understandable. I mean, it's counterintuitive because people, people do the exact opposite thing. They look at what has been you know, which has been the best performing type of strategy or hedge fund, and that's what they invested. But there are mechanics that are set up because of that that really flip the odds. So, for example, if you use hedge, hedge fund strategies, if, if a particular hedge fund strategy is done very well, let's, and an easy example is if you take a sector strategy, or it's true for stocks too. If you look at, and I, yeah, I think that was the other thing, I think the third experiment I did was I used the 10 S&P sectors. Again, looking at if you invested in the best sector of the last one, three, five years versus the worst and the average. So in all of those cases, the best did worse than the average and usually did worse than the worst. Because so let's say you pick a sector, let's say the best performing sector you pick uh, over the past 10 years has been, uh, has been energy, okay, as an example. So you know what does that mean? Well, that means if that's true, then you can kind of take for granted that you've had a big bull market in crude oil. Now, what does that mean? Well, if crude oil prices have gone up a lot in the last three years, let's say, that means that you now have uh, you know, marginal wells being brought into production. You have more investment in energy expansion. You have uh, substitute energy sources you know, uh, becoming more competitive and uh, all of the, and people conserving more, right? So you have all of these supply demand forces which are triggered by that very fact that this was the best performing sector, which all are now going to act to, to, to against it. So, yeah. uh, you know, and there's a bit of a reversion to the mean there too, you know. If you have, if you have a manager that's, that fluctuates in performance, but you invest, and you see this in CTAs, all that, particularly in CTAs, in market sense and nonsense, I think I have lots of examples where if, you know, you, you get, you can see investors coming in into a CTA as he has exceptional performance and then liquidating, you know, at the lows. They almost go together perfectly. So, yeah, you know, so if a CTA is making money, but it's cycling around some sort of uptrend in return, 
um, if you're buying him or investing when that CTA is having his upside excursion, uh, the odds are not good because just a normal fluctuation around the, his uptrending mean is going to give you a bad entry point. But, but if you look at the likes of the EV sector and Tesla and NIO and stuff like that, would you not just say it for the next 10 years, that's the golden sector, it's done? Or would you put forward the argument that you've just put forward with energy and say, no, nah, it's going to get too competitive? It's just more of the general concept of getting out of the idea of looking what performed best in the recent past. Uh, it's not a good guideline. Now, long-term track markets, you know, have some meaning, but that that's not necessarily because of the recent past. It's because of the entire track record. But focusing on the recent past is not a good is not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Jack, you know, one of the questions that I had was after this is like thirty years of you talking to some of the best traders in the world. What has been impact on your trading? over these years, like these stories, these conversations, all that you've learned from them, I I imagine because they're so diverse and they're so, you know, eclectic, how does one listen to all these geniuses and then kind of pull out for yourself how to proceed or who you might listen to or feel inspired by? Yes, myself, as with anybody else who could read these books, it's a matter of picking out what resonates for you. And it's different for everybody, you know, for everybody. So when somebody tells me, you know, which chapter I like best, I have no idea because it's always a different chapter. Yeah. Because different people will will bring, you know, will like I say, resonate with, yeah. with you know trades. And so for myself, I think the risk management, which I had some inkling of before the books, but certainly that reinforced that the idea decide where you get out before you get in is something I do, and. Um, I'm not a good, I'm not a particularly good trader. I'm certainly no market wizard for sure. And, uh, but insofar as I'm, I'm net profitable, a lot of that is because I've absorbed that lesson of, uh, of you know, uh, always when I put on a trade, unless it's, I, I shouldn't qualify. There is an exception. There's a difference between trading and investing, right? Mm-hmm. So if I'm putting on a trade uh, as more of an investment, like um, I can think back in late 2008, I thought we were seeing a classic, a classic panic sell-off. And so I put on some long-term uh, calls and stuff like, uh, you know, metals index and the uh, Chinese index. And just because I thought, you know, they're down 75%, you know, they'll, you know, in the next year or two, the, you know, I don't see myself losing much on this and there is a potential. Bet. So I had no stops on that. That was just like, that was a bet. That was a kind of investment bet. So, but, but without exception, any trade I do will always have a stop. So that's, a, that's, you know, at the time of entry. And that's something that comes, my being influenced from the books. And there's nothing like, there's other things you pick up. I, I don't want to go too many, but here's another example. From one of the traders, uh, uh, Scott Ramsey, who's a CTA, I picked up the idea about correlation in markets. And it's a really sophisticated idea. And it's also, everybody knows risk management and discipline. This is the kind of idea that you don't have, you know. So these ideas pop up in the various books. And this is an example of something that no one else had mentioned. And that is correlation between markets, the usefulness of it. And it's not the correlation that's useful. It's when you have a correlation and it breaks. So I can think of a very specific trade. Uh, Last, you know, uh, earlier this year, we had a situation with gold was coming up for a uh, a second high, and um, I'm trying to think. The uh, I think it was the S and P. At the time, there was correlation, I believe, between there was a strong correlation between gold and the S and P, which is kind of odd because a lot of times in history you get the top, the inverse. But at that particular point in time, they were very very strongly correlated. And what happened is you made the high in gold, you had a big down. And then you rallied again, and S&P was rallying. And you have a point in time where between that first high and when gold made its kind of came up to the same point, the S&P just had gone tremendously up. And so gold had lagged, and in fact, you had the S&P making new highs, and gold went down a day or something like that. So I remember going short or buying puts, I forget which it was, 
I think it was buying puts, uh, just on noticing that break of correlation. Now, I would never have noticed that trade or done, certainly not done that trade had I not had that other interview. Mm. And so, uh, um, you know, there's some interesting, it's also the idea of, uh, I'll throw out one more because it is interesting. Yeah. Uh, Marty Schwartz, uh, and this is like, again, another kind of one of these things a trader says that you don't hear all the time. And he said, at one point in the interview, he said, if you're ever in a trade that you're really worried about and the market lets you off the hook easily, don't get out. And so, you know, the idea like, um, you know, the market closes and new highs and, and on a Friday and it looks like it's going to run away and, and you're short and, and you're, you know, you're thinking how much you're going to lose uh, when the market opens up. And then the market opens up in the lower Monday, that type of, or, sorry, or Sunday night, that type of situation. And so this was a particular case where I was looking for, for, tech, for pure chart reasons, I was looking for the market to a zone where I was looking for it to fail. And what indicate what I was looking at is irrelevant, but it was, that was the idea. So I was scaling into a short and I was almost completely, you know, 100% in the short. And then that, that was a Friday, a, um, uh, an unemployment report comes out. And I forget we have the specific, but one of these reports, it was just completely one-sided, you know, and there was not a negative thing about it. And I'm short. And, uh, or, or actually, the report, let me put it this way, I forget exactly the specifics, but that report, uh, I'm sorry, it was, it was not, not, not positive, it was negative for, for the stock market. So everything about it was negative. And sure enough, I'm sure the market sells, sells off. So I said, you know, my first thought is, wow, great. I just identified the exact high area and the trade's working great. And then the market starts rallying. It's a Friday. It starts rallying and rallying and rallying. And I think it recovers the entire, you know, loss on what was a, you know, which, which should have been a really negative report. And then it closes near the high of the day. And I, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, boy, I'm scared. I remember my son coming over on the weekend. I'm telling him, boy, I'm just going to get really killed. And that Sunday night, the stock market opened up in the lower. And I swear to God, I wow. thought I interviewed with Schwartz. And I kind of, I knew I shouldn't. I held it. And then, you know, after it went down a bit, I got out of it a little bit. I just didn't want to tempt the fates too much, you know, but that was it. The market, you know, went back down again. And if it wasn't for that Schwartz interview, I, I certainly would have gotten out of relief that Sunday night. Wow. Amazing. Amazing that you thought of it in the moment. But I imagine there's so many jewels buried in your unconscious from yeah. all these well, interviews. That, I, I actually, that wasn't unconscious. I, I thought mm-hmm. of Schwartz's, you know. Yeah, interview. It, and it also, it was not only Schwartz, but in the Bill Lipschitz uh, interview, there's kind of a fascinating story where he is in exactly that situation that Schwartz was describing. And I also had that story in mind. So yeah, so my own books do influence my own trading. And, you know, but what I draw from it will not necessarily be what other people draw from them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm looking forward to you finding the women market wizards, yeah, Jack. So, no, it's, I, <laughs> it's hard. You know, you know, I, I get criticized for it, but you know, I put out the uh, I put out a tweet asking for women traders. You know, I got many, many hundreds. I, there wasn't a single woman, in, you know, in that in the, in the responses. Yeah. Um, but I'm also I'm looking for ten year plus records. Yes. I'm looking for really exceptional performance. So women have entered this industry kind of with a great lag, mm. and so you know, it, I did it ten years from now. It would be maybe a lot easier. Yeah. But, at this point, not to say that there are women that are great out there, but the ratio is very lopsided. Yes. And so I'm trying to find people. I'm just not getting, you know, I I would have been more than happy to include women. You know? I, I totally know that about you. And I, I too, when I was looking for, you know, finance people who came from a place of integrity, I actually interviewed some women. And then in the end, they said they didn't want to be featured. So I have experienced some women seem to want to stay under the radar uh, because of a collection of reasons. But uh, I, I do believe that 
they haven't responded to you. Maybe some of them just don't want to be known and they want to just keep their nice little, I know, I noticed, of course, that one gentleman who was back and forth, do I want to be in his book? And then, you know, thank God he said yes, because he has such a great story. And because your book so influenced him to become a trader that that just, you know, but, I, but I can appreciate somebody maybe wanting to keep a low profile uh, and your books are definitely going to put them in the spotlight for sure. Probably. <laughs> For sure. Uh, there was a quote at the start of your book. You, you, have, you have three really powerful quotes at the start of the book. There's no such thing as being right or beating the market. If you make money, it is because you understood the same thing as the market did. If you lose money, it is simply because you got it wrong. There is no way, other way of looking at it. And that right. is from Musar uh, Ijaz. Did I pronounce his name right? I'm not sure how he pronounced his name, but I, okay. I think I read that quote in some article or, you know, whatever. I, I forget where I got to, you know, but I saw that quote and I, I saved it because I thought it was a really good quote. Yeah, it's powerful. It, it said, you know, I think that heart of the matter is like, are you able to build up a tolerance for ha- getting it wrong? Like, you, you know, if, if you can be with getting it wrong, that to me you- seems like the key. You have to, like uh, like Jeff Newman, we talked about earlier, the guy who turned us thousands into 50 million. He's, you know, paraphrasing the quote here, but he, he says, when I get out of a trade, I'm out. I you know, five minutes later, I don't even remember what trade it was. It's such, you know, he's in it, he's in it. But once he's out, forget it, on to the next thing. It's like, and that's, you know, that's the attitude that, that one has to have. And and in, in, in virt- virtually all these traders said, if it's not going if it's not going the way they expect, they're out right away. So they're not trying to sit there and rationalize, well, this market is so stupid. <laughs> you know, I'm the only one who's getting smart enough. They'll eventually, the market will eventually realize what I know. Yeah, it's a type of thing, and, and this this comes up in the book too, in, in the Shapiro chapter, The Contrarian, where, you know, he was a contrarian all along because that's his personality. Yeah. But, it, you know, he kept on blowing, blowing his accounts up until he understood the risk management side. And so, but he talks about in 97, when Greenspan came out with this famous irrational exuberance. And you know what? And and Shapiro says, you know, he was sitting there and he says, gee, Greenspan and I are the only ones who understand this, right? And by the, you know, the market goes down on Greenspan's comment. And that same day, it rallies back again. And he knows he's screwed, you know, but he just... uh, so it, you can be, and, and he and Greenspan were right. The market was overpriced that, you know, then, but it also, it went up for another two, three years. So uh, being right is not going to get you anywhere. You know, if you're not right at the right time, you'll, you'll be carried out. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. What, do, what would you say to these young beginner traders that are our viewers, uh, you know, where, where do you point them by way of uh, what, what would say the top three jewels of wisdom you'd give to those that are just beginning their journey? Yeah, well, um, understand that ultimately risk management is going to be more important to you to, to, if you're going to be successful. Risk management is going to be more important than necessarily the methodology you, you you ultimately gravitate to. Second, you need to develop a methodology that does have an edge, meaning it doesn't have to be a big edge, but it means over time you're making more money than you're losing. And it's a repeatable process. It's well-defined and it doesn't generate huge drawdowns to get your you know, uh, up, upside. So you have to develop a, a methodology of an edge and it takes time uh, and not everybody's going to be able to do it. But, but unless you have both the edge and the risk management, you cannot, you, you have to have both. You're missing either one of those, you can't be successful. And uh, I guess the third thing I would say would be to start small because most people do not do well in the beginning. And you might as well learn your market lessons, you know, cheaper. And the more money you throw in at the beginning, the more expensive those market lessons will be. So start small and only build up as you gain um, you know, as, as your equity is showing you that you're doing something right. Yeah, yeah. 
just let's jump in. I mean, what I think is interesting as well, I'm sure I read this as well. Um, it's that you don't really need to be too intelligent to get trading. You just have to have a, a love of the game. Would you say, and I've also read that if you're too intelligent, it can be a problem because you overthink things too much and it's quite simple. But would you say that kind of anyone can get trading if they love it enough? Or is it just for some people and not others? Well, intelligence, more correctly, maybe not so much intelligence as as kind of book learning intelligence, that type of thing. Uh, so that can vary all over the place. So I've got people who never had education beyond high school, like one of the traders in this book, uh, to people who, uh, you know, who have like uh, Thorpe, who, who had a PhD in mathematics and uh, was working on a, the- you know, a thesis on PhD physics, but he, he never finished it. But so you wasn't got- there a bellhop, Jack? Wasn't there a bellhop? Oh, this book, yeah, this book, yeah. So the guy with only a high school education was a bellhop, yeah. And so education is not, is, I mean, it's, it's a different type of, you have to have, you have to have a certain type of, of intellect. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean a school intellect though, you know, so mm. some people are just, just have that, that thing that they, they can just latch into the market and figure something out or have, have the proper instincts or whatever. So uh, it's not, it's not so much the education. Like I say, that ranges all over the place. Mm. But, but it is interesting though that it, it's hard to explain but some people just have that thing yeah and, and you can't really explain what it is no it's like i'll give you a perfect example michael marcus uh i mean he he, he had uh, i guess he went to graduate school in psychology i believe uh but he didn't have any particular market training or 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 mathematical skills and uh, and i remember you know we were you know, I met him when I was getting my first job. He was vacating it. And we stayed, you know, and while he was still in New York at the time, which I was, we would get together for lunch every few weeks or whatever. And I just remember that he had this talent where I would do all the analysis and come to some conclusion, which might be wrong. But he would pick out the one thing that was important. There might be a hundred factors in the market, but he would, he would just have the instinct to know which factor was a driving factor. And yeah. just think of it. When he interviewed for a trading position at Commodities Corp, which at the time was filled with PhDs, you know, uh, they kind of thought, that, you know, when they asked about his background, and it was just, you know, he had some psychology, but, and then just, and the, the line that he just trades, you know, when they were discussing it among themselves, which later <laughs> found out, and, and, and they thought it was very funny, you know, that only, you know, he just trades, but, but that was the most important thing. He just trades, but he had this amazing skill at trading. Yeah, no, no, because it's not—it's not an ability to look at lots of different pieces of information and, and put them together to make a prediction. Because you've just said it's—it's it's not that. It's the ability to just know the right what information is the right information. Yeah, instinctively, yeah. just just to have the common sense to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. You know, I I can't help but think of that prop firm where those three or four gentlemen three, who are three, three three that are in the book like boy they have a good track record of picking the guys well, like i don't know if they're still around i think that the guy the, the people who found it in may i think they they may have retired or whatever so uh, amazing that they know. saw these qualities but, in yeah, untried traders you know, they found at least these two three, three traders that i know about so they were apparently very good and oddly enough they the founders were came off the floor so they didn't trade. In fact, you mentioned Richard Barge. I mean, sort of, they they tried to tell him, you know, try to make an old money every day, you know. Yes. And, and that was so counter to the way he, and that's, you have to, that was the other thing, you have to trade your personality. So yeah. if he had tried to trade the way they were telling him, he would, he would have not done well because yeah. his approach was completely different. His approach was just to look for that real opportunity and then trade it heavily. Not yeah. to try to make it all money every day. Yeah, it? wasn't that so, two years, two or three years? He tried to trade the methodology they recommended to him. Well, he, he, tried, he tried technical. Initially, he tried technical analysis because because they had other people trading fundamentals, and you know they really wanted somebody to trade technical, and you know, and he, and he kept on trying it, and it wasn't really. Yet, what had happened was he was kind of breaking even or losing money, 
But once I, so I said, how did you get your track record? Yeah. So well, it was just those few times a year that he would do these fundamental trades that gave him all his profit. So, you know, the other stuff was just getting in his way. And when he finally just abandoned it, you know, he, he got better. Yeah. Yeah. It's because it, you can't, for me, it's very difficult to learn how to trade and copy and replicate someone else's strategy. Right. But and it's just what you said. Everyone trades their own personality. So the best way to learn trading, I guess, would you say it's to just learn from as many different people as you, as you can pick different pieces from different people and, and mold that way or. Yeah, you, you can't, you can have mentors to learn certain things from, but you still have to develop your own methodology. What, what would you say was the best piece of advice that you were given from all of the interviews that you've done that, that improved your trading? Uh, in this book? And uh, across all? Well, if I said if anything, I, I, we had that question a few a while ago, I gave you, you know, a general thing about the money management and getting, deciding where to get out before you get in. That's maybe the single most important thing I've got out of my own books. Uh, but like, you know, the examples I mentioned, the correlation, the the uh, how the market reacts after what seems to be a scary situation, those type of things. So there are other things that I've gotten and, uh, you know, but those are three examples. The other thing I noticed across the board was the advocacy of giving yourself three, like one gentleman, I think it's Brandt actually, who says uh, three years to even get a clue of how they should trade and five years to reach some level of consistency. If you don't have the three to five years to achieve that competency, trading competency, you probably shouldn't trade. Yeah, that was Peter. And, um, you know, I think generally that's true. People underestimate how long it would take to develop as a trader. And it, it is measured in years. And sometimes, sometimes it could be a lot longer. And it, sometimes it could be decades before you, you develop the methodology that really works and, and, and you stay with. So um, it's not as short as people would like it to be. Yeah. Yeah. And these market wizards, you know, these guys are, are incredible. And yet it took them years to become incredible. Yeah. Yeah, well, some of them, some of them were, in this book particularly, probably more so than any other book, were successful from early on, you know, so, mm. uh, but they're still, you know, the other, the other group where they blew out a couple of times before they were successful. So you, you really get both. Uh, I think it's more common for people to not do well or be mediocre at best in the beginning and not really become good until after a while. But you do have your occasional your occasional people who are just, you know, successful right from the start. And, uh, you know, so uh, we do have both, both situations. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is great, Jack. It's uh, unknown market wizards. It's the fifth in the series, the market fifth. wizards. Yeah. The fifth. I uh, can't recommend these books enough, especially to beginner traders. It really will help you see, uh, just so much the emotional volatility that a trader goes through and the technical aspects that they ha- you have to like, it's like going through the mud under the barbed wire. And I think just hearing those stories and the variety of stories uh, are really, they're, they're going to at least help you understand, especially as you begin this journey, what you can prepare yourself for, how to gird your loins for all that is ahead. Anything you want to add, Stephen? Oh, go ahead. I'm saying, you know, there are two ways you can learn. You get better at anything. You can listen. You can find people who are really expert at it and try to replicate the things that they do. Uh, I don't mean methodology-wise, but I mean traits that they follow. And and that's one way. Or you can find people who are terrible and do the the opposite. But, (laughs) But so the idea of interviewing people who have been successful for long periods of time and not just successful, but extraordinarily successful. You, you're bound to get useful. If you're open-minded, you're just bound to get useful stuff uh, out of it. Uh, and um, and what's interesting is it's true. That's true for novices as well as professionals. So, hmm. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times people have told me that you know they went they went through it when they were beginners and they highlight a whole bunch of things or whatever, and then they pick up the book ten years later and they notice a whole bunch of things they didn't notice the first time. Because they, you know, uh, it, it's like that wonderful parable that I, Ed Sakota wrote for as a forward in, 
and I think it was New Market Wizards or, or Wonder, but maybe it's one of the Market Wizards, but I don't remember which one, but it's basically about someone wanting to be a Jade Master and he goes back and, and the Jade Master has him, you know, sweeping out the uh, room and doing all sorts of stuff unrelated to Jade. And after a while, he says, the piece I hold in my hand is not Jade. You know, it's sort of like, it sort of you know, gets the, it's the same type of thing that people, you have to get to a certain level before you start seeing things you didn't see before. Yeah, beautiful. That's really powerful. So true. So true. Stephen, any last questions? Uh, no, just just thank you, Jack, because your probably your, the first written book I've probably ever read was yours. Um, it was a lot, a lot of audible podcasts, walking to and from work, well before I moved into trading. So thank you for that. And I, I just want to just kind of uh, just reaffirm the importance of risk management because it's something that you've touched on quite a few times. And mm. for a lot of the the traders and the new guys who are learning, risk is so important. It's it's a mistake that I make a lot. Thinking about what you can make, not thinking about what you can lose, then all of a sudden you're down more than you thought you should lose. So just thank you for stressing the importance of, of risk and these top these elite wizards. A lot risk is the, one of the main factors that they that they have. So so thank you for that. Sure. The best trading. Uh, yeah. Go ahead, Jack. No, that's, that's the best traders you've never heard of. Unknown market wizards by Jack Schwaker out now. Get yourselves a copy. Learn from the masters. And uh, Jack, please let us know when you have another book so we can have you come back. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna have to find those women. I want to see those women. And hopefully, in the next few years, I just finished this morning an interview with four women traders who Stephen uh, connected me with, and it was an amazing conversation. And, and I'll tell you, those women, I think in a couple of years, we're gonna see some magic from them. So. Uh, I think it's definitely yeah for sure for sure absolutely all right well thank you everybody for coming to the steady trade podcast Stephen Johnson and I thank you we thank Jack Schwager for coming on and we'll see you on the next episode of Hui Ho and Aloha for now